Welcome to History Frogcast, a production of the TCU History Department, where we put the life and times of horned frogs into their rightful place in world history. I'm about that riff ram, bazoo, liggity liggity zoo zoo, ooh wah, wahoo, give them hell, TCU, riff ram, bazoo, liggity liggity zoo zoo. Robert St. John in the NBC newsroom in New York. Ladies and gentlemen, we may be approaching a fateful hour. All night long, bulletins have been pouring in from Berlin claiming that D-Day is here, claiming that the invasion of Western Europe has begun. Uh... That was NBC announcing the invasion of France on June 6, 1944. Hello, my name is Sydney Williams. And I'm Armando Saldana, and welcome to this episode of History Frogcast. In this episode, we will be discussing two TCU alumni that gave the ultimate sacrifice during the invasion at Normandy during World War II. We also had the great pleasure of speaking to award-winning professor, author, and military historian, Dr. John C. McManus. But before we dive into that, here is a summary of the Normandy invasion. On June 6, 1944, the United States participated in one of the most pivotal events during World War II the Allied Invasion at Normandy, or better known as D-Day. D-Day is known for being the largest amphibious invasion in military history. The invasion included five beaches, which were Omaha, Utah, Gold, Juneau, and Sword Beach. During the invasion, the Allied forces altogether had about 133,000 troops that landed on the shore, plus 7,000 ships and landing crafts manned by over 195,000 Navy personnel. D-Day also wasn't just one day. The campaign lasted all the way to July 24, 1944, and the Normandy invasion was just over two months long. Allied troops continued their landings on the northern coast of France throughout yesterday. The third invasion communique from Supreme Allied Headquarters says satisfactory progress has been made thus far in the invasion of Hitler's Europe. The communique says that United States Rangers and British commandos took part in the landings. And the war bulletin adds that no further attempts have been made by enemy naval forces to interfere with our seaborne landings of men and material. Allied warships are pounding at those Nazi coastal batteries still in action. At twilight yesterday, for the fourth time during the day, Allied heavy bombers poured... This radio broadcast came from NBC on June 7, 1944. The broadcast gave listeners an update following D-Day and gave them optimism during the war. So why is the invasion considered one of the most pivotal moments of World War II? The reason why is because it essentially led to the liberation of Western Europe during the war. We decided to ask Dr. McManus why he believed that merely getting ashore on D-Day somehow guaranteed the victory for the Allies, even though the German military proved to be a strong military. There, there was, you know, like getting ashore seemed to be this enormous obstacle um, because uh, it was so tough to pull off uh, because the Allies had to spend, you know, a couple of years gaining control of the sea, getting control of the air, um, which was very tough, training people up, figuring out how to breach um, some of the beach defenses of the famous pillboxes and beach obstacles and all that. Amphibious operations are really tough to pull off. And there was a sense before World War II 
um, that because of what had happened in World War One at a place called Gallipoli, which was a disastrous invasion of Turkey in 1915 that the British and the French had tried to pull off, there was a sense amphibious operations were not feasible in modern warfare. This got us thinking. So then we asked him, how does he think the battle would have played out if there weren't stormy seas and if all of the tanks reached their target destinations? Would it have affected the outcome of the battle significantly or not at all? Yeah, at Omaha Beach, I think if you have those tanks that uh, that get ashore in greater numbers, you're probably just going to, the battle end up in the same way with the Americans winning and seizing the beach, but you'll save lives. Um, you know, in the 1st Infantry Division side of Omaha Beach, out of the 32 DD or duplex drive, like swimming tanks that are earmarked to come ashore, only, only uh, 27 sink and only five get ashore. You add those 27 tanks to the mix, plus some of the others that are that are uh, struggling to come in on landing craft or, or whatever. Um, it just stands to reason that you're going to have more fire support that you're probably not going to have as high a casualties. Um, I think that would have been the best part of it. But I also want to say that I, I think there's a sense because of what happened there with those uh, those tanks that sank. Um, that there wasn't much armor on the beach, and actually there was. Uh, there, there were quite a few tanks for the Americans on Omaha Beach and also on Utah Beach, too, obviously famously for the British on their beaches as well. So the armor plays a major role for the Allies throughout D-Day, but, um, but maybe not as much as the planners would have hoped and, and expected, and that was maybe the difference. With Dr. McMahon as being a military historian, we decided to ask him how his ideas and thoughts of the Normandy invasion differ from someone who hasn't studied it as much as himself. Yeah, I think that the, the average American tends to look at it as, well, once D-Day happens, the war's over. Um, you know, we, we've won. And sometimes, and this, this one thing that sort of gets me bristling a lot of times is when I, I see in media stories, of, like usually during each anniversary, that uh, D-Day was somehow the turning point of World War II in Europe. It wasn't. Um, the turning point was earlier, like in North Africa and Stalingrad and places like that. It was what I call a pivot point. In other words, when you get ashore uh, at Normandy and you're in a position then eventually to win the Battle of Normandy and, and everything that follows, that's the pivot point to the end of Nazi Germany. That means Germany is going to lose the war. But of course, a lot of fighting had to be done. So I think I think there's a tendency for all of us um, you know, to, to kind of fixate on D-Day and, and say, okay, you know, once we're sure, we're going to win and it's over. And Truman announced the official surrender. This is a solemn but glorious hour. I wish that Franklin D. Roosevelt had lived to see this day. General Eisenhower informs me that the forces of Germany have surrendered to the United Nations. The flags of freedom fly all over Europe. For this victory, we join in offering our thanks to the providence which has guided and sustained us through the dark days of adversity and into light. Much remains to be done. This was President Truman announcing the end of World War II and the defeat of German forces in 1945. Although the invasion benefited the Allies during the war, America still faced many casualties during the invasion. The estimated total battle casualties for the United States was 135,000, including 29,000 killed and 106,000 wounded or missing. 
Among these deaths during the invasion, there are two servicemen that hit home as these two men are TCU alumni. Hubert Lindsay and Preston Hooper were two soldiers who got deployed to fight in the Battle of Normandy and unfortunately lost their lives. They are now buried at the Normandy Cemetery in France. Hubert Wayne Lindsay was born on May 3, 1909. In October of 1940, he was drafted into the United States Army Air Forces and served during World War II. Lindsay had the rank of flight officer. Lindsay was attached to 100th Squadron, 441st Troop Carrier Group as a glider pilot. He received his glider training at the South Plains Army Airfield in Lubbock, Texas in August 1943. Field Officer Lindsay lost his life on June 7, 1944 during glider Operation Neptune and was awarded the Purple Heart for his sacrifice. Hubert Lindsay is buried at Plot D, Row 15, Grave 43, Normandy American Cemetery in Colleville-sur-Mer, France. Preston Lee Hooper was born on May 2, 1919. He was also drafted into the Army on October 16, 1940, where he served with 60th Infantry Regiment, 9th Infantry Division, nicknamed the Go Devils. Hooper's unit did not participate on the day of D-Day, as they were in England at the time, getting briefed about their first mission in Normandy. During that mission, Lieutenant Hooper was killed in action, as well as 122 others, on June 29, 1944. Preston Hooper was awarded a Purple Heart for his sacrifice as well. He was also buried at the Normandy American Cemetery Memorial, where he lays rest in Plot D, Row 21, Grave 27. In his book, The Americans at Normandy, Dr. McManus really made it show that the soldiers were very important people in the invasion. Instead of just rehashing the battle, he added details that humanized the soldiers. So we wanted to know his opinion on who was one of the most important soldiers, if any, during the invasion. I mean, from an American perspective, it probably is uh, Lieutenant General Omar Bradley because, you know, he is the, the U.S. ground commander. He's in charge of all these troops who have to do the actual fighting. And I think he has much influence on, of course, the invasion itself, like, like what's going to happen with the American invasion beaches, the airborne drops and all that. But the subsequent battle that he has to, to manage throughout the summer of 1944 is just massive you know so um if we're talking in terms of importance uh, i think certainly it's him um in terms of maybe who's most compelling uh, and most interesting i think at some levels um major general matthew ridgeway is one of the most compelling figures he's the commander of the 82nd airborne division which does so much fighting in normandy and he has to make all these kind of difficult choices because, uh, you know, he controls an airborne division that's really supposed to be kind of just shock troops to, to capture, uh, you know, the bridges and, and whatnot. Uh, and then maybe get out of combat and hand it over to, to more um, uh, substantial military forces that will reinforce. But in Normandy, he didn't have the luxury. You know, the 82nd has to fight as a regular unit. And so he goes from having to kind of uh, plan this kind of coup de main airborne drop to ultimately just managing his his soldiers throughout several weeks of intensive attrition style combat in the hedgerows. And you kind of see him struggle with all these various decisions and, and new kind of um, uh, like terrain and operational challenge that he's got. And I, that to me was one of the most interesting aspects of the story beyond of course, the experiences of the average soldiers who are in the hedgerows and, 
you know, what that's like for them. But I, I think we, when we see it sort of through Ridgeway's eyes, we get a sense of that too. When you think of servicemen and women losing their lives in war, what is one thing that comes to mind? For me, it's TAPS. Losing people in war is very tough emotionally on families and on other Americans. Being a Marine Corps veteran and having fellow brothers and sisters lose their lives both in combat and non-combat situations, I've had to listen to it many times. TAPS is a bugle call that is iconic and sounds eloquent and haunting. The call is usually played at military funerals and memorial services as a symbol of honor, respect, and remembrance. The bugle call was first played in July of 1862. General Daniel Adams Butterfield wrote taps to honor his troops lost in the Seven Days Battle during the Peninsular Campaign of 1862. The reason for writing this bugle call was because General Butterfield wasn't pleased with the lights-out call that was played at the end of each day. Because of its spread through other units in the Union Army and Confederates at the time, TAPS became the official bugle call after war. During our interview with Dr. McManus, we asked him, how was your experience gathering the research of the soldiers you mentioned in your book? Did you ever speak directly to the families of the soldiers, or did you just rely on previous records? It's all a mix, you know, it's because I've been at this for, for so long and since, since I was uh, an undergrad and before. Um, so I've known families, I've known actual veterans, uh, I mean, just a complete mixture. Um, but by the time that I uh, published a book called uh, The Dead and Those About to Die, The Big Red Boat on Omaha Beach, which is very much like a deep dive into that division at Omaha Beach, you know, most of the soldiers were gone by then, even those, you know, who survived the war. Um, but there was an incredible amount of documentation, and including one of the most moving things was documenting, um, uh, you know, the stories of a lot of those guys who are buried in the cemetery at, at Normandy, just like what you guys are doing. And, um, you know, so I could, I could track down maybe where they were, what had happened in the circumstances of their death, the correspondence with their families, um, all that kind of stuff. And, and, uh, so actually post-publication is when you're going to tend to hear more from families rather than pre-publication, regrettably, because, uh, you know, they read the book and then get in touch with you and everything. That's, that's extremely moving, you know, as, as you can imagine. Um, so, you know, each, what I did with, uh, with that particular unit, each person who's buried in the cemetery or listed on the wall, the missing, I, I attempted to document precisely what happened. And, um, and in many instances, I was able to do so. Uh, I think maybe you guys are familiar with, with trying to approach that and how tough that can be sometimes. But you really kind of get to know the person on some levels, too. And I think that's kind of what interests me, I guess. Many men came here as soldiers. Many men. This song we found called The Longest Day by Paul Anka was released in 1962 to be the title song for the war film also called Longest Day. After watching the film, Anka was inspired to write a song that conveyed the emotions and experiences from the stories shown in the film. In the song, Anka was able to display the bravery, sacrifice, and resiliency of soldiers during World War II through his lyrics and melody of the song. His song also had an impact on society by showing listeners the reality and consequences of war. 
He does this through some of his lyrics such as, This will be the longest day, filled with hopes and filled with fears, and filled with blood and sweat and tears. And tears, many men, the mighty thousands, many men, to victory, marching on, right into battle, in the longest day in history. Daddy was home when you left. You're right. TCU values are current, former, and future military members. Not only do they honor those who lost their lives, but offer programs to help students that are wanting to commission as an officer in the military or veterans that want to continue their education after service. Since June of 1940, at the time, TCU offered what was known as the Civilian Pilot Training Program, but later changed to the War Pilot Training Program. They were taught about flying in physics class and then transported to local fields for flying lessons. From September 1942 to January 1944, Jarvis Hall was used for the Special Flights Instructors Program. This program was an experiment by the Navy to utilize instructors in science who were over age or didn't meet the physical requirements to be a combat pilot. TCU was the first of only six units in universities that had this program in the U.S. In 1950, the Air Force ROTC was established on campus followed by Army ROTC the following summer. In the early 1970s, women were admitted into the ROTC units. The first female cadet commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Army in 1975, and following her two years later was Air Force ROTC cadet Gail Ramali, who became the first cadet to earn the rank of cadet colonel. Today, the ROTC programs at TCU enroll about 100 cadets per year. More than 660 Air Force officers have trained and commissioned from TCU Air Force ROTC, Detachment 845 over the past 55 years. Since 1951, the Army ROTC has had about 930 graduates receive Army commissions. These cadets major in different fields of study, but TCU has a strong connection with the Army Nurse Corps with Harris School of Nursing being one of the biggest producers of Army nurse officers. TCU also allows veterans to continue their education with the use of the GI Bill and the Yellow Ribbon Program. The Yellow Ribbon Program is a part of the post-9-11 Veterans Educational Assistance Act of 2008. This program allows U.S. institutions of higher learning to voluntarily enter into an agreement with the Department of Veterans Affairs. Preston Hooper and Hubert Lindsay weren't the only TCU students to serve in World War II or in other wars. To commemorate these two servicemen and others alike, TCU's class of 1923 gifted the Memorial Arch to honor those who gave the ultimate sacrifice in World War I. Then, in 1949, the arch was reconstructed into what's now the Memorial Columns. Then, in 2005, the Veterans Plaza was designed and planned by Michael Bennett a fellow TCU alumni from the class of 1978. He wanted the plaza built and dedicated for those who fought in both world wars, Korean, Vietnam, the Persian Gulf, Afghanistan, and Iraq. 
The Veterans Plaza might look like just another memorial, but the design was planned to embody the sacrifices and heroism of veterans. A description given by Michael Bennett states that the grove of trees represents the TCU community and, quote, like a grove of trees, the members of the TCU community belong together. When one of the trees in a grove is lost, the grove is no longer the same. He also described the deeper meaning of the missing trees in the plaza, stating, the trees missing from the grove on the west side of the Veterans Plaza symbolize the absence of those veterans lost in war. Bennett then described that in the spaces where the trees would have stood is a monument of plaques with the names of the fallen. When I pass by the memorial columns on the way to class, I always acknowledge it and think about all the lives that were sacrificed for our freedom. On November 8, 1957, Preston Hooper, as well as another TCU student named Sam Carpenter, were honored in an article written by the skiff called Sacrifice for Freedom. The article was put into the skiff for students to remember those who have fallen for the upcoming Veterans Day. The article stated, We take it for granted that at the beginning of each semester, we can go to the counselor, get his advice for enrolling in a course, and make it legal by filling out a pink card. To us, it's that simple. The skiff then continues by saying, that pink card, however, was paid in blood. If it had not been men like Carpenter and Hooper and thousands of others who left this campus to fight in three wars, we would be looking at a different breed of instructors altogether. Throughout our research, I've learned a lot about the meaning of the Veterans Plaza and its history, as well as the two TCU alumni that lost their lives for this country during an important day in history. Overall, I thoroughly enjoyed getting to study these two fallen soldiers as well as the impact not only these soldiers had on our community, but how soldiers all around the world have impacted society. Doing this project was an opportunity for us to give a voice back to the fallen soldiers who came before us and fought for our freedom. Stay tuned for the next episode hosted by Chloe Mantel and Diego Velasquez as they dive into Horned Frog Women at War and the WAC. Thank you for tuning into this episode of History Frogcast. Have a good day, and as always, go frogs. TCU. Give them hell, TCU. Until next time, Riff Ram, y'all. TCU. Riff Ram.